It is the first Sunday evening of the month, and generally that means that uh, this evening we will spend some time in some Bible questions and answers. Um, this month I've been given three. It's about eating flesh, women working, and custom versus command. And so I want to point out that each of these questions reflect what's on people's minds and the passages that they are studying. Uh, quite frequently, I will have people call and ask a question as they're going through their daily Bible reading. Sometimes people will say, I'd like to know a little bit more. I'd like to, for you to preach on this subject. And so those get added to our Sunday evening Bible questions and answers. And I will tell you, in my opinion, this reflects people who are hungry and thirsting for righteousness. They want to know what God's Word means, how it applies to their life, and how they ought to uh, follow what God has said. And the answers are available if you and I will seek. If you'll remember what Jesus said in John chapter 7 and verse 17, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. If anyone wills to do his will. There's got to be some ambition. There's got to be some effort. There's got to be some interest, if you will, in trying to solve the questions that we have in our minds. Matthew 7 and verse 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. Here's the first question that I received. What did Jesus mean when he said, Eat my flesh and drink my blood in John chapter 6, verses 53 and 54? Let me read that passage for you. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, um, I don't think a person who asks this question should be too embarrassed. I don't think you should say, well, maybe I should have understood it better. Because if you look at the context in chapter 6 and verse 60, it says, Then many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? If they had difficulty hearing the Lord's teaching, then I would not be surprised that some of us occasionally stumble or maybe even have some deeper questions as we read and understand these passages. I will tell you, though, that understanding what the Lord said and the implications of it led some to even leave following the Lord. If you get to verse 66... From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They've been following Jesus. They've been listening to him. But when he got to the sermon on the bread of life, and he got to explaining what all that involved, some of them said, no, I can't, I can't go any further with this. Well, there's various interpretations. Let me take a couple of minutes to try to deal with some interpretations. If you're reading somebody who's a member of the Roman Catholic Church, they believe in a doctrine known as the Eucharist. 
we generally call it the Lord's Supper. And if you read a little bit more, you realize the Catholic view is that the bread and the fruit of the vine become the literal body of Jesus and the literal blood of Jesus. In fact, I remember the first time I visited a Catholic church and I asked a question because the priest was talking about giving the host the bread. And whatever's left over, they actually put it into a thing to bury because they treat it as if it was the literal body of Christ. This view is known as transubstantiation, where they believe that once the priest blesses the bread, once he blesses the wine or the fruit of the vine, then it becomes a literal body and blood of the Lord. And someone reading John chapter 6 might would come away and say, Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood. But you see, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you realize that the Lord was using a figure of speech. He was using something called a metaphor. He was using something where you allow something that represents something else. And listen to Paul as he addresses this to the Corinthians. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Now listen carefully to verse 26. For as often as you eat this, bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes therefore whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord notice Jesus didn't say when you eat my body he said when you eat this bread it's obvious from Paul's explanation that the bread represents the body of Jesus. The fruit of the vine represents his blood, but we're not eating the literal body and the blood of the Lord. But there's another view. And that is when you read John chapter 6, Jesus talks about the manna that is coming down out of heaven. He talked about how it fed the children of Israel and how he explained that man would not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so John 6, rather than being a reference to the Lord's Supper, is a reference to the words of Jesus. And when you think about that, that follows an Old Testament pattern. If you remember the book of Ezekiel, he said, Then he spread it before me, and there was a writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and your stomach with this scroll that I give you. And so I ate it, and it was in my mouth like honey for sweetness. But it wasn't just Ezekiel who used that figure. You go to Revelation chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. 
And he says, the angel said to me, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it. And it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And it was sweet like honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Both of these illustrations are used to try to talk about in taking God's word. And when you go to the context there of John chapter 6, look with me at verse 63 and then look at verses 68 and 69. Jesus said, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Verse 68 and 69. But Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. and We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So I would suggest to you that when you read John chapter 6, that most likely what Jesus is referring to is his words when he talks about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He's talking about taking in the message that he is the son of God who is giving his body, who is giving his blood for the sacrifice of man. Second question. Is it wrong for a woman to work outside the home? That's not my question. That's a question that was asked. And two passages were included. Titus chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. That they admonish, and talking about the older women, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste. The New King James says, homemakers. Good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 14, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity for the adversary to speak reproachfully. Whenever I look at a passage, I always try to see what do the words mean? What words are used? Two interesting words used here. In Titus 2 and verse 5, the word for homemakers is oikurios. And you say, well, I don't understand what that word means. The word oikos is the word for house. The word oros is the word for a guardian or warden. Somebody like might be a, a guardian of a prison or might be a warden of a prison. So you put the two words together. She's the guardian of the house. She's the keeper of the house, like a, a person would be a keeper of a prison. It's her goal or her role, if you will, to be that gatekeeper, if you will, of the house. That's her responsibility. But I find the word in 1 Timothy 5 even more interesting. Again, it's got that word oikos at the front, but then it has the word despot. And I think you know what a word despot means. It means a master, an absolute ruler. So she is one who is the ruler of the house. And someone says, oh, well, that's maybe a little more strong than I wanted. Maybe that's a little more forceful. 
But you see, that's a role that God assigned to the woman. She has responsibilities within the home, which cannot and must not be neglected. Proverbs chapter 7 and verse 11 says about the bad woman, she was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. That means she didn't take care of what her responsibilities were at home. She was out doing other things which she ought not to have done. What I find really interesting is going all the way back to the beginning. After Adam and Eve had sinned and God called to account the serpent, the woman, and the man, he said to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception." In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your faith you shall eat till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. He says to the woman, you have some roles. You are the one who is going to give birth to children. You are going to serve in a role where your husband is now going to be your protector and your provider. But then he turns to Adam as the husband and he says, your role as a husband is going to be harder because now you're going to have to work hard because the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles and you're going to have to till it. You're going to have to work hard to make it. And so if you look at the roles that God assigned going back to the very beginning, the woman has a responsibility in the home. And someone says, oh, So that's her role then. That's the only thing she can do. Oh, no, no. That doesn't mean she cannot have work outside the home. In fact, if you go to the book of Proverbs, to chapter 31, you will find out that the woman there, and he says, a virtuous wife who can find for her price is far above rubies. Chapter 31 and verse 10. But listen to what he says about her. In verse 16, verse 18, and verse 24, she considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. You think about that for just a moment. She considers a field and buys it. She engages in commerce, business, if you will. She takes the profit she has made and she plants a vineyard in that field that she has bought. Verse 18, she perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She has something to sell. She has merchandise. What does she do? Her lamp does not go out by night. I'm going to tell you, verse 18 reflects what I know about many good mothers. Those mothers work real hard maintaining the household and sometimes even have to work into the night to be able to take care of all their tasks. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. 
she supplies sashes to the merchants. So I ask you, if you look at verses 16, 18, and 24, does that woman carry on work outside of her home? Absolutely she does. But it's not just that. This morning we studied Acts chapter 16. We read about this good, godly woman by the name of Lydia. And we learn from Acts 16 verse 14, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. Here's a good woman, and yet she's in another city and she's carrying out business on her part. So the question asked, is it right or is it permissible for a woman to work outside of the home? I would suggest to you that the Bible says that it is, but that she still also has an obligation within the home. Question number three, how do we determine the difference between a custom and a command? Examples, we don't practice holy kiss or foot washing. This is one of the challenging questions that I find many times that younger people say, why do we do what we do? And this would require a lot longer discussion than just we'll have to discuss here in a few minutes. But let me point out to you that you have to consider whether the act is either essential or it's incidental. In fact, when you're studying the whole Bible, you have to ask the question, when they did something, was it an essential part of what they did or was it only incidental that it happened there? A good example, for instance, you are reading Acts chapter 20 and you're reading about the gathering of the church there in Troas and Paul is going to preach the midnight. The Bible tells us that they were in an upper room where they had many lights. Well, is it essential that when the church meets that we always meet in an upper room? Second floor, third floor? And you say, oh, no, no, that's only incidental. He's telling what was happening there. Oh, okay, I see that. But they partook of the Lord's Supper. That was something that was essential. And you see it because of the context. It's something that was required. Is the act something that is necessary in its connection to a principle? And so when you start asking about a custom or a command, is this act something that the Lord intended to be connected directly to the principle? Like, for instance, baptism. Why do we baptize and immerse? Because Jesus said to, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Mark 16, verse 16. But then you start asking, well, why do we do other things? Well, let's look at the two examples that were asked. The first, the holy kiss. The kiss was an Eastern custom of greeting, and it still is. If you ever notice, people, for instance, in the Middle East, as they greet one another, do not greet like we do here in the West. They will go up and they will kiss one another on the cheek. If you start looking in the Bible, you find that example numerous times. For instance, you go back to Genesis chapter 27. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near now and kiss me, my son. And he came near and kissed him, and he smelled of his clothing. Here's a son, comes to his father. What does he do? He goes and he kisses his father. 
In Genesis 29, verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Or Genesis 31, verse 28, And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters, and you have done foolishly in so doing. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Notice now that there's a kissing of the king. You go to Luke chapter 7, verse 45. Simon has invited Jesus to his home. And there's a woman sitting at Jesus' feet who's crying and weeping and she is washing the feet of Jesus with her tears, drying it with her hair, and she's kissing his feet. And Jesus said, you gave me no kiss. But this woman's not ceased to kiss my feet since the time that I came in. It was a customary greeting. You come in someone's house, you give them a kiss, a greeting. Perhaps the saddest one is found in Luke 22, verses 47 and 48. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude... And he who is called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That's the way that Judas was going to signal. Now those are just a few of the passages. But you realize that the kiss of the Bible was a holy kiss. A holy kiss. It represented an affection from a member of the body of Christ to another member of the body of Christ. But it was not a passionate kiss. It was a kiss of love. You can find it in Romans 16, verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. 1 Corinthians 16, 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 2 Corinthians 13, 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians 5, 26, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 1 Peter 5, verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus, amen. You see, there was this greeting that took place, but it was holy. Now, let me give you a little insight here. The Greek word for kiss is philema. And the idea is is that it is an expression of love. The word phileo is the, the word for the brotherly type love. In our custom today, we don't generally go kiss, particularly one man on another man's cheek. That's just not a part of our custom. In fact, it would be considered awkward. It would be considered um, probably most men would push you back if that were to happen. On the other hand, we do shake hands, and that is a form of greeting, and it is a form of that when you shake hands with someone, you are extending a hand of friendship toward them. Someone sticks their hand out to shake hands with you, you know that they feel a sense of camaraderie toward you. And occasionally, a hug is a part of that, whether it's men or women. Uh, But if it were to be that case... It needs to be holy. It needs to be respectable. The principle is love or holiness in the manner in which one expresses that greeting. 
Let me take one that's even a little bit harder, though, and I think that's the one of the washing of feet. Because if you're studying John chapter 13 and you come to that passage where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, and people look at what the Lord did there, and then they look at the Lord's Supper and they start saying, why do we choose one of these things to do and another one we don't do? The washing of feet in the east was where people walked with open sandals and their feet were dirty, actually unclean. They needed to be washed. If you go to Genesis 18, verses 4 and 5, Abraham says, Please let a little water be brought in and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts and after that you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you said. You know, when you're going to provide somebody some food to eat, to refresh them, part of that was the hospitality of the washing of feet. Genesis 24, verse 32, Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and to wash, water to wash the feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Notice it's just like the, the feeding of animals. It's, it's a thing that you do for a person in their need. Luke 7 and verse 44 Then he turned to the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Water for my feet. But then the passage, which I think most of us would think about, is John chapter 13. I'm going to begin with verse 5 and read through verse 14. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said, What I am doing to you, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If you, I did not wash you, then you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my, my feet only, but also my hands and my head. But Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are all clean, but not all of you. For he said he knew who would betray him, therefore he said you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Then if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now you think about that. Number one today, we don't walk on dusty roads with open sandals. Jesus explained to Peter, Peter, you don't need to be washed all over. You've already bathed. It's only your feet that need washing. It would only be to do something for the very sake of doing it for us to wash feet today because it's not about feet being dirty. But there is a principle there. And the principle that the Lord showed was quite abundantly clear. You look at me, I'm the Lord. I'm the one who descended from heaven. I am the Son of God. If I'm willing to get down and humble myself and serve you, then you people 
And by the way, the context here, you're not seeing it, but they've been arguing about which one is going to be the greatest. You can go back to Matthew chapter 20 and see that. They're arguing who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus is saying, I'm trying to teach you something. Humility and service. And so the principle is that of humble service. The custom was to provide the need of washing of dirty feet. So if I'm studying the Bible and I find things, I have to go back to what a point I tried to make initially. Is something essential or is it only incidental? Is it a, a principle that is there or is there actually something that needs to be done to fulfill the Lord's command? Being baptized is very plain. It's very clear. Jesus commanded to do it. It was illustrated, but... The washing of feet is something that was only something that was incidental in this matter. There's nothing wrong with questioning what something means. As Brother Leonard read earlier in Mark 9 and verse 10, they kept this word to themselves questioning what the rising of the dead meant. You read some of these passages and you're saying, what does this mean? I want to understand. Well... You should seek to learn more, to know more and understand. That's good to ask the questions. But I never want us to forget the most important question still remains. What must I do to be saved? When you come to the very end of all the questions that have been asked, that's the one that the answer must be right. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you and all your household, Acts 16 and verse 30. And you must repent of your sins, Luke chapter 13, verse 3 and verse 5. You must confess your faith in Christ, Matthew 10, 32 and 33. And then be baptized for the remission of your sins. The question is tonight, is that what you need to do? We're going to sing the song, Tomorrow May Be Too Late. That is one that I think certainly should make us think. If you need to become a Christian or return to the Lord in faithfulness, please come as we stand together and sing.